Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolbert. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, once again, we're dipping into the bag of listener suggestions and pulling out some treasures. But before we get into all that lucky stuff, what is going on? Some of you may have noticed a special episode in your feed. Mike Percival Maxwell of Mr. Spike's Bedtime Stories recorded Frank Belknap Long's weird tale The Hounds of Tindalos with me as a guest reader, voicing the character of Hulp and Chalmers. So if following our discussion of The Hounds of Tindalos a few episodes ago, you fancy listening to or reading the story of itself, well, now you can. I was wondering if you were actually going to voice the hounds themselves, but evidently not. There you go. <laughs> Well, if you've been listening to recent episodes, you may have noticed that we've started putting little commercial breaks in the centre of the episode. These are generally for other podcasts that we like, but even then, some people don't want to hear them. If you are one of these people, then you might be interested to know that the version that goes out on our Patreon feed does not have these commercial breaks in it. So if you want your ears to be unsullied by adverts, go along to patreon.com slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias. And now on to our main topic, Bride of Listener Suggestions. Well, turning back the clock to November last year, we asked our listeners via Discord and Twitter what topics they'd like to hear us discuss. We started going through them back in episodes 255 and 259, but we've not even reached the halfway point yet, because by God, there were a lot of them. While the suggestions were excellent, not all of them would fill a full episode. We're taking the approach of going through them on air, answering those we can address quickly and picking out others for longer discussions later. Once again, we thank you very much for everyone who responded. And boy, there were a lot of you. So thank you. Yes. And it'll also be like walking towards the back of one of those queues where more people are joining the queue and you have to keep on walking. I have witnessed that once or twice. It's very frustrating. Uh, but, but, you know, this, this list of listener suggestions, we're never going to get to the end of it. I hope because <laughs> our fantastic listeners keep making suggestions. So if you've got more suggestions, please fire them our way via by, by the various channels that you can reach us through. People keep making suggestions, and most of them aren't obscene. Mm. You say most of them. I want to see what obscene ones there are out there now. That's in the uncut version of the show. Oh, yeah. Good friends after dark. Well, should we start off with one from... Dirk the Dice of the Grognard Files podcast. Mm -hmm. He says, Looking forward to the long-awaited gothic horror series. Must be several pods in that one alone, as it includes literature, films, and locations for games. Let's jump into that, yeah. Oh, well, we did do our gothic horror episode, of course, a while back. Aw. He talks about there must be several pods in that. We found one to discuss once again we've proved dirk wrong <laughs> <laughs> a 
job is done. I'm just wondering if we're missing a treat here. I mean, Matt, you're our gothic expert. Are there any aspects of uh, of gothic horror that you think we should be delving into? Well, definitely films. We touched upon a little bit with um, Bore Baby Bore. I mean, um, Kill Baby Kill. <laughs> On paper, at least thematically, very much fits as a gothic film, but you know, personally didn't find it massively enjoyable. But it might be something we could look at if you want to go with the schlock end of the gothic. You could always go with the likes of the Hammer Horror films because they very much uh, fit into that kind of style. Mm. I think at some point we should absolutely delve into Edgar Allan Poe because obviously he was a huge influence on Lovecraft, particularly mm. Lovecraft's early work, uh, pretty much Poe pastiches. And... His influence is still there throughout the horror genre. I mean, it crops up in Call of Cthulhu fairly regularly. Fiction aside, and God knows there's enough fiction there to talk about, there's some fantastic stuff we could go into about the man himself because mm. he was an oddball. Just a little. Yeah, and a very interesting life, yeah. You could always look at the differences between the different eras, like the different waves of Gothic. Urban Gothic in particular, I think, is one that you could really mm. kind of delve into because that's probably one of the more more mind areas of Gothic in terms of film these days and a lot of fiction that's kind of homaging back to that era. And that late Victorian period, which ties in with the Urban Gothic, spawned all sorts of interesting Gothic fiction. Many, many years ago, I read The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and did not get on with it at all. And then recently I reread it because our friend Irene Hensey was running a scenario inspired by it. And I thought I'd do a bit of homework and just reread it prior to that because, I mean, it's not a long book. And reading it the second time round, I don't know why I didn't like it the first time, because it, it absolutely drew me in this time. The first time it just sort of glided over me, but that would be a really interesting story to talk about. Mm. Because it's not at all what you expect if you're used to the film adaptations. But I, I think that's true of a lot of these great gothic horrors that have been adapted so many times. Mm. The same way as if you go back to Frankenstein or Dracula yeah. or the picture of Dorian Gray, the source material is never what you expect it to be. Mm. I was very disappointed with Frankenstein not having like an underground laboratory with like those lightning rods <laughs> and, uh, you know, all that. It's alive! Yeah. <laughs> and also, it's Frankenstein, as he rams a funk into his knee. Yes. Dirk then goes on. He's got, a, as he said, it's an extended list. So uh, point two on the Dirk the Dice list. He says, also tips for creating a dynastic campaign. In brackets, characters experiencing the same horror in different eras. Well, this rings a bell for us, I think. I was going to say, I've, we've been there, done that, and don't want to do it again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we worked on um, a campaign called The Poison Tree, and that very much took this approach of characters in different eras, but like substantially different eras. So what were they, like some were 50 or 100 years apart over several centuries? And different parts of the world as well, corresponding to the time period. They're not going to stay in Wales forever, right? end up all over the place yeah i suppose one of the bits of advice that we can pass on was one of the bits of advice we were given when we first had our discussions with pelgrane about 
what can we mine for inspiration? And that's have a look at how the Great Pendragon campaign does it, which is quite topical with the release of the uh, new Pendragon starter set. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So anything we can take from that? What would you say about that? That it's just how you weave in the narrative when you pass it down from your in that case it's not so much like 50 year gaps it's gaps mm. between generations so it's like you when you've aged you then pay your kids and then their kids and then their kids and then their kids so that's a lot more linear in terms of the connection between your character and the previous character whereas well, what we set up with poison tree is a lot more pardon the expression branching out that you're playing lots of different branches of the same family rather than a direct lineage so there's 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 i suppose those are two different routes that you can take yeah i mean ours was kind of purposefully disconnected really there were some chapters where you're playing people who might be of the family they might not be of the family they might know mm -hmm. about the whole thing they might not know about the whole thing so um yeah it was a kind of an opportunity to explore different periods and different settings and sort of link them all together with a sort of overarching plot i suppose i like the idea of this sort of generational uh campaign of things being passed down and and kind of lost and found again the next one he suggests is cthulhu and espionage delta green and the laundry files i'd say there's there's one missing from that list <laughs> the decent one yeah <laughs> I personally don't have much experience of Delta Green, so I can't really speak about that. The Laundry Files, I've played the game once. I, I've read all the books, and I like the books immensely. But um, not a game I've got a lot of experience with. World War Cthulhu, I know a bit about, though. Oh, that, that one, yeah. We did do an episode on World War Cthulhu, God donkey's years ago i can't remember what number it is but i'll put a link in the show notes personally yes i think the and espionage go together very well because there's i think a lot of similarities as we explore particularly in the cold war setting between the way cults operate and the way perhaps spy rings and espionage work when I say cults, I'm talking about Cthulhu cults rather than necessarily real-world cults. Though there's some overlap there with perhaps the world of terrorist cells and cults and so on, and there's similar mindsets there. But in this fictional setting, yeah, I think the lines between those different worlds blur quite nicely, and the same set of skills that allow you to investigate one can very easily lead to getting involved with the others. From an antagonist point of view, the kinds of people who are perhaps drawn to terrorism, perhaps drawn to cultish activities, might very well get used in espionage in various ways. And so, yeah, I think they're worlds that blur together very nicely. Looking at the, admittedly, the shortlist there, I'm not too familiar with the Laundry Files. I'm aware that it's more comedic than anything else. Yes, no. Mm. It certainly started out that way. So, I mean, The Laundry Files is based on a series of books by Charles Stross and was turned into an RPG by Cubicle 7 many years ago. And 
The basic premise is that, yeah, there are Lovecraftian horrors from beyond time and space, but the way that humanity tends to interact with them or connect with them is primarily through mathematics. And that through certain mathematical computations and formulas and so on, you can deliberately or inadvertently do what you might consider magic, you know, these summoning rituals or or call rituals. And this is an incredibly dangerous thing to do because, for a start, it risks destroying your own mind, but also there is a steady fraying of reality. The more that people do that, the more the barriers between worlds break down, the more of these intrusions happen, and eventually you end up with what is referred to within the espionage circles of the laundry as a case nightmare green, where the stars come right and these, these horrors start intruding into our world in a big way. And yeah, The Laundry Files, as a series of books, it started out as these very deliberate parodies of uh, particular subgenres of espionage fiction, particular authors, with very geeky references built in. But it, it developed over time into something else and shot off in all sorts of strange directions. I love it as a series of books. But yeah, like I say, I've not really got much experience of it as a game. Like us with Delta Green, uh, I've played the the new one a fair bit, but I have to say I vastly preferred it when it was just a Call of Cthulhu setting. I'm not a fan of the rules of the new game particularly that much. I think to say Call of Cthulhu the rules work a lot better with it. And also I wouldn't label it as an espionage game. I'd label it as a conspiracy game, but you don't really have spycraft. There's no espionage that takes place in it. It's purely conspiracies and various people in government agencies that are undercover working for the same agenda. When you take it as a the standalone role-playing game version of it, the more modern version, I'd say it just has even more military overtones than it does anything else. It's, I wouldn't put it in the espionage category with uh, The Laundry Files or World War Cthulhu. I think it's very much its own thing, and it's not, yeah, definitely not espionage, no. Dirk then lists Call of Cthulhu in White Dwarf. In brackets, a personal obsession. Yeah, so we're going White Dwarf back in the day here. We're talking White Dwarf in the 1980s. Yeah, back in the days when they published stuff for RPGs and when Games Workshop licensed American RPGs and published them in the UK. Mm. So they published scenarios then for D&D, they published them for Traveller and for Call of Cthulhu. And that was actually where I first learned of Call of Cthulhu. I, I remember I'd played mm. D&D at school and in the school library, they'd had some copies of White Dwarf come through. And having played D&D, I thought, oh, this is interesting, picked up White Dwarf. And I came across a Call of Cthulhu scenario in there and I cannot remember which one. And after my experience of playing D&D, I, th I think I've said this on the podcast before, I looked at this scenario and thought, oh, hang on. Where's the map? How do you play this? Mm. There's no room labels or anything like that. You know, where's the dungeon? And I sat down, read it, was absolutely fascinated. And you know, since I had the money, ran out and bought a copy of the game. Yeah, I think White Dwarf 
back in the day it did a great job of disseminating those new games to us because obviously we didn't have the internet mm. and there were a smaller number of games there was still a massive number of different games out there but it was a much smaller number than it is today any if there were a magazine today that tried to do the same i don't know how it would cope really badly so that was also the first place i came across call cthulhu i think and i had no idea about lovecraft or any of that at the time i'd heard of lovecraft before not read much of his stuff but i i certainly hadn't encountered call of cthulhu and matt wasn't born <laughs> 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 when I discovered White Dwarf, it was a very short period in which I was interested in playing Warhammer 40k and realised, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's basically a magazine that is just basically a whole stack of printed pictures of miniatures and held no interest to me whatsoever. A bit like the way that my 40k army went to someone else entirely. I've got a couple of old issues, but not many, and I haven't really read through them. I've mainly picked them up as they came in bundles of stuff that I was more interested in buying that people were selling, that these just happened to come with them. So two that stand out to me, I think, well, one particularly stands out to me was The Curse of the Bone, which I had great fun running that. I remember running that very clearly. And also there was a, not really a scenario, but like an insert that you could put into a scenario, like a travel insert called, I think it was called Fear of Flying. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I inserted that into a sort of homebrew campaign. My homebrew campaign was, I don't know, it was the strange case of, I don't know, Boris Rollins or somebody Rollins, anyway. <laughs> These were both written by Marcus Rowland. Yeah. Who was uh, a prolific contributor to White Dwarf mm. back then and still attends conventions today. And uh, yeah, I think it was last year I was at Continuum and myself and some friends were in a game that Marcus was running uh, and it was... Um, he's great for ideas. Oh, God, yeah. This game was set on Mars... But it was the War of the Worlds, but you were some of the Martians. And right. at some point in the game, humans would land on your planet in these little spaceships and sort of come <laughs> out and like, you know, or maybe we were on the moon, actually. I think maybe we were on the moon. I can't remember. Like the first men on the moon? Yeah, that kind of thing. And uh, it scratch built the aliens from <laughs> like bits of sweet corn and bits of wire and so on and it was uh, it was quite wonderful yeah and it was i think it was a very improvised game yeah i played with them a few times at conventions and yeah oh god he's marvelous fun mm. yes like you say yeah, he comes up with bizarre ideas he, he put out a game a few years back well a few years back probably about 20 years ago yeah a long time ago called forgotten futures which yeah. is absolutely fucking amazing. I love Forgotten Futures. The game mechanics, I must admit, I've, I've never really paid much attention to the game mechanics. They're probably fine. I never played them, and I probably should at some stage just to see what they're like. But where the strength of the game lies, and it's freely available, you can download it online, is that he's taken all these old science fiction stories from the late Victorian era in the early 20th century, which are now in the public domain, and he's turned them into source books for the game. And each one has got a lot of period information and illustrations in there, and you know, tells you how to bring the world to that particular book to life. So, for example, one of the ones that he did there is based on William Hope Hodgson's Karnaki the Ghost Finder, which is called the Karnaki Cylinder, or Cylinders, and it's an absolutely phenomenal piece of game writing. 
Yeah, and I believe he published those uh, and and donated the money to charity. I think they were sort of charitable um, endeavors, which you know, marvelous. It was for a while. Yeah, he before the ubiquity of internet downloads, he sold them on CD-ROM. And yeah, the money that he got for that was all donated to charity. Also, he published, I think, Diana Warrior Princess. Yes. And Elvis, The Legendary Journeys, the follow-up. Yes, and just some great titles. Yeah. And the Flatland RPG as well. Right. Which is fantastic. So yeah, going back to the White Dwarf, I don't know, there's a bunch of fun stuff in there and it's a great record of gaming back in the day as well back in the in the mm. 1980s i think is a great because i think a lot of what we have now being on the internet is going to be ephemeral you know even some of the websites that mm. we remember they've gone now um, and they may still be archived somewhere but uh, this stuff kind of goes whereas the magazines you know they're going to be as long as people are collecting them and keeping them in uh, those little weird plastic sleeves they're going to be around forever and some of those Call of Cthulhu scenarios in there were amazing. I, mm. Marcus Roten, like you say, wrote a fair few of them, and I think Graham Davis wrote a few of them. I've had the pleasure of playing a number of them recently because Andy Goodman over on Grizzly Peaks Radio decided to start running these these white dwarf scenarios. Oh, gosh, it must be like four years ago. And I played through a whole bunch of them with him and the rest of the Grizzly Peaks crew. And, yeah, it's been fantastic. We've stopped doing them now. We've we've moved on to when I play Shadows of Yogg-Sothoth. But we played The Watchers of Walberswick, mm. The Surrey Enigma, Ghost Jackal Kill. Yes. Was there another one? We certainly played those three. And yeah, they were fantastic fun. Next on Dirk's list, Dagon fanzine, in brackets, another obsession. I'm getting the impression Dirk has a lot of obsessions. (laughs) And this is only the tip of the iceberg I think we're seeing here. So Dagon, did anybody get Dagon back in the day? Because I certainly yeah. didn't. It was I didn't discover it until like I don't know, going to um, that bookshop in Birmingham, that kind of book come game shop. It's gone now. I can't remember. All oh, right, that stuff just passed me by. I think I wasn't sort of in in those circles to sort of find it. I didn't buy every issue, but I picked up some of them at the time. The thing that got me into them was there was a, an issue of it that was devoted to a work of a friend of mine at the time, uh, Des Lewis who's a prolific weird fiction writer. We were in the same writer's workshop together at the time. And yeah, Dagon put out a D.F. Lewis special. I'm sure I've still got my signed copy of it around here somewhere. I know it exists. I haven't got a copy. I see it come up on eBay quite a lot on my searches, usually for extortionate amounts. That's probably why I haven't got any. Yeah, it looks like a great resource of uh, information that would be relevant to our show, but yeah, I just occasionally see like one pop up on PDF or there's a few issues archived, I think, on PDF on the on the internet. But yeah. It's the kind of thing that will probably never come back into print because mm. the guy who edited it, Carl Ford, he died a few years back. And because it was contributors from all over the place, I think all of whom kept their own copyright, there's almost certainly rights issues there. Yeah, that's not gonna happen. It wasn't just a gaming magazine. It was primarily a fiction magazine, but they did gaming stuff in there as well. 
they had fantastic artwork. They tended to have covers by Dave Carson, who does amazing horror, monster, Lovecraftian illustrations. And the artwork throughout was, was just terrific. The covers look good. I remember that seeing them on eBay. Next, he lists your Sword and Sorcery series was a highlight. I'd love to hear you give an overview of other genres. For example, pulp science fiction. I wouldn't go for pulp sci-fi personally because it's not horror, but that's me. Yeah, our show is about horror, so I guess mm. that doesn't really fit. I mean, you can make anything horror if you want. Yeah, I was about to say that didn't stop us doing Sword and Sorcery. That's true, yeah. I will express my same enjoyment of that. <laughs> Oh, yeah, Matt didn't like that either. (laughs) And we discussed westerns as well, or at least weird westerns. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which, again, is a very niche genre. Yeah, this is a slippery slope to discussing romantic comedies. Oh, fuck that (laughs) shit. That's the real horror. I guess horror-adjacent genres. Mm. Well, we talked about sword and sorcery. Sword and sorcery is very much a kissing cousin to horror. As I've said before, it's basically horror stories in a different setting. The weird westerns we discussed, yeah. But if anyone's got any suggestions of other, I guess, blurred genres or horror-adjacent genres, I was reminded the other day when I was researching... Uh, well, researching, reading articles about Jonathan Carroll for the episode we put out last time. There was a big push in the 1990s to create a new genre that was very short-lived, but and that was Slipstream. I mean, do either of you remember Slipstream? No idea. Nope. Publishers tried to make it happen. There was a big slipstream, well, big slipstream. There was a slipstream section in the Forbidden Planet. So slipstream was this attempt to, I guess it's like the whole elevated horror thing that got marketed a while back. It was like a combination of the respectable side of, of science fiction, or at least science fiction and genre fiction with literary fiction influences, or literary fiction that drew upon genre fiction. It's like the grandfather of of Slipstream in those days was probably William Burroughs. It was these, these things that didn't quite fit into any neat genre. I don't know if anyone still uses the term, but I mean, it might be worth looking at that as an artefact of the 1990s and looking at some of the works that were there and whether they've they've still got anything to offer us. Yeah, maybe so. It seems a difficult thing to create a new genre because it's one of those things that evolve from, I would have said, it it evolves from the populace. It's something we impose on a collection of works rather than the works trying to, to impose it on us, I would have said. Yeah, but I mean, ultimately, every genre is an artificial distinction and, you know, is, is more a, a marketing label than anything else. Another possibility might be for us to look at 
more subgenres of horror. We have done that a bit, but we've looked at it more in terms of specific aspects of horror. But there are also subgenres, mm. like again, go back to the nineties and the eighties. There was the whole splatterpunk movement, but um, there was yeah. Is that time in the 90s when there were all these very dark thrillers that were sort of taking over the horror market and that blurred line between thrillers and horror? Yeah, we've done quite a few different sort of subgenres of horror, haven't we? We've done body horror, we've done uh, They're Escaping My Memory, but we've done a, a, yeah. a selection of different episodes on different aspects of horror. And I think, you know, those were very enjoyable and I'd be keen to do more of those. Yeah, I, I guess the difference between the ones that I was just pointing out and what we've done before is the ones that I just mentioned were more sort of attempts to group together disparate types of horror that people were writing at the time for marketing rather than an element or a, an approach to horror, like psychological horror or survival horror or body horror, whatever that seem to be more of a an element rather than a, a genre. Mm. But yes, if, if anyone has any suggestions of stuff like that that we might cover, please let us know. And then the last thing on Dirk's list is bring back NPCs from history. Well, Dirk, they haven't gone away. We're still doing them. We're still doing them. They're just occasional features. And, you know, if you've got suggestions of characters from history that we can uh, base a show on, then far away. And yes, the Fred Dibner episode is still in the works, Dirk. <laughs> We did do an episode as recently as episode 257 on, on Edgar Casey, so they are around. Moving away from Dirk the Dice, we're now on to Orbital Axolotl. Not as long a list here, I think it's actually just, just the one, it just spans a few lines. Hmm. Orbital writes, Tom Slick has a great potential as a strange NPC from history. Again, I've never heard of this person. Uh, would make an excellent benefactor, given he literally did that in the real world. Plus, it's never a bad time to think about him roping Jimmy Stewart into a Yeti hand heist. What the fuck is it? Apparently, this is a true story that uh, yeah, he employed yes. James Stewart, the actor, the, the one that you're thinking of, yeah. to smuggle a Yeti hand, which is, you know, already it's like, it's a Yeti hand. Not only is he <laughs> smuggling it into the America, it's a Yeti hand. I did look this guy up. And uh, born 1916, dies 1962, heir to an oil business, which seems like nominative determinism, him being called Slick, <laughs> and uh, is famous for his search for the Loch Ness Monster, Yeti, and Bigfoot. And I'm guessing he didn't find them, but he did try and get Jimmy Stewart to uh, smuggle a Yeti hand. So maybe he did find at least a part of the Yeti. It's just the biggest part of the monkey's paw story. If every time its finger curls, something <laughs> bad happens. But yeah, yeah, he seemed to get involved with all sorts of hijinks. I'd heard of him, but I wasn't overly familiar with him until I, yeah, like you, Paul, I googled him. And you know, I definitely want to find out more about him. <laughs> From the Wikipedia page, one of the last bits in there was Nicolas Cage was to have portrayed Slick in a movie, Tom Slick, a monster hunter. Fantastic. But the project stalled. <laughs> the unbearable weight of massive talent. The unbearable weight of massive Yeti. 
Yeah. I just find Cage unbearable. That is a great movie, by the way, if you haven't seen it. I haven't seen it, and I will carry on just taking your word for that. Okay, good. We also had a suggestion from Sarah D uh, along very similar lines for another great NPCs episode, and she said, uh, another possibility is Ronald Edwin, though I can't find much information about him apart from in his autobiography, A Clock Without Hands. He was, according to his account, convinced that he had proper ESP, unlike the fake psychics around him, but his lack of showmanship ended up not making him much money, and so he then proceeded to fake seances. Feeling ashamed, he then moved to Africa for a bit, and then came back. The book itself is worth the read for the chapter literally entitled How to Fake a Seance, where he goes into great detail about the tips and tricks people can use. Damn, we've just done an episode about this. <laughs> <laughs> when Sarah suggested this, I did go looking for it. And unfortunately, the book is long, long out of print. I don't think it's been in print for like 60 or 70 years. Oh. You can find the occasional secondhand copy for like hundreds of pounds. Wow. I'm sure it must be out of copyright. So mm. I did go looking on Gutenberg and other public domain sources, but it's not there. So, yeah, unfortunately, it is beyond my reach at the moment. I'd love to read it, but I can't find a way to do so at the moment without bankrupting myself. Well, it'd be interesting if any of our listeners have access to, because, I mean, certainly academics have access to certain collections online that aren't readily available to regular punters like us so mm. you know possibly if somebody can get us access to a copy of that because it's not in copyright that would be marvelous yeah it sounds like an interesting character and i think it also i know that it undermines what i said earlier about nowadays everything is freely available and accessible <laughs> but both of these characters i think in terms of what we're doing here is partly looking and discussing listener suggestions, but also looking out for actual topics we could turn into a whole mm. show. I guess both of these characters have the potential that we might make a show out of them. It just, I guess it depends. We have a look at them and see how much merit we think they've got to, to make a show from. Okay, fungi, hear me out, which is a nice, nice long handle there, says, Emperor Norton, in capital letters. <laughs> I, I can drop random. It's like, King Bob, if I drop a minion reference in here. <laughs> but what, what, who the fuck is Emperor Norton? Well, he was Emperor of the United States, Matt. Yeah. He issued his own currency. He had uh, yep. something like about 10,000 people turn out to his funeral. A big, big in the day, where, and the day being like he died in 1880. So um, a famous character of the period. I know there's the whole contra-public thing where they tried to set themselves up as a uh, kind of comedy mm. state in Florida, but I've never heard of this fella. Oh, right, no. He was quite famous in his own way. He got a mention in Huckleberry Finn, but I first encountered him through Discordianism. So... He is a patron saint of Discordianism. For those who don't know what Discordianism is... Hail Eris! It's something that was created by a bunch of hippies in the 60s, and it describes itself as a religion disguised as a joke or a joke disguised as a religion. 
the holy book is the uh, Principia Discordia, which is freely available online. And yeah, it's, it's fun hippie shit from the time. But that was my introduction. And, and Robert Anton Wilson was heavily involved with Discordianism. And I'm pretty sure he brought Emperor Norton into some of his books. And that was that was where I encountered him. But I think if our listeners know him through fiction, they probably know him because there was an issue of Sandman devoted to him about this this man and the dreams that shaped him. And as Paul mentioned, he issued his own currency, but it was weirder than you might think from that. He was this real eccentric who... Yes, he declared himself Norton, the first emperor of the United States, and then protector of Mexico after Napoleon III invaded Mexico. But he was accepted by the community around him. He did write his own currency, but people accepted that. And now, whether they did it because they were humouring him or because they actually saw some validity in there or somewhere in between, he is this fantastically ambiguous character who is a a great example of how someone's eccentricities or madness even can shape the world in in odd ways i found him an endlessly fascinating character this could be a great npc in brackets down darker trails i was wondering about that because yeah it's the tail end of his life is just about at the right time Obviously, you'd need to have characters heading out to San Francisco, potentially, to meet him. But again, he's another one who, even if you don't use him directly in a game, he's another one who you might also be able to just take inspiration from Mm. and have a character who's an analogue of him elsewhere. And we'll be right back after this short message from one of our sponsors. Well, not sponsor, but people we like. Do you like obscure books of hidden knowledge? I know I do. The Blasphemous Tome is a Call of Cthulhu fanzine produced by the good friends of Jackson Elias. Everyone who backs us gets immediate access to a host of sanity-blasting issues of the Tome. Join us at patreon.com slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias. And you're back listening to more of The Bride of Listener Suggestions. Yeah, and uh, we got another one, this one from Bud's RPG Review, and his question is, how to make modern horror terrifying and use the very things that people think will help them to make things worse? Well, I mean, this just sounds like everyday life. (laughs) (laughs) If you'd been in on this recording this afternoon, things that should help people and make things worse, that's just Matt's internet connection. Fucking internet. <laughs> but we did actually do an episode about this all the way back in episode 71, but that was in 2017. So whether that still qualifies as the modern day is debatable. Nothing's changed since then, has it? <laughs> it's just got a little bit more shit, like my internet still crap. <laughs> yeah, six years ago. I guess in the, in the grand scheme of things, I'm not sure what has changed that we would talk about. The world has changed in many ways. Well, I guess we'd have to go back and listen to that episode again to refresh our memories because I don't even remember doing that episode. So, I seem to remember we went into how 
a lot of people didn't like modern Call of Cthulhu games because they thought that having access to mobile phones and the internet and so on made communications and research too easy. And I think we were offering counterpoints as to how that could actually enliven the game and introduce different possibilities. It may be worth revisiting some of that and... I'm sure there are angles we didn't cover, and as we said, things have changed since then, but also maybe there are ideas that have occurred to us since then, ways that we might approach some of these things that would make it fresh, maybe. I mean, certainly credit to Bud for he co-authored the scenario Viral, which I, mm. I've played, and that does some great things with technology, and it's kind of a a most haunted type crew go to a, an, a, an Italian island. Playing through it, it seemed like I can see what you'd do with that, but he did some interesting things with it, I thought, with in, involving the technology, the way that kind of impacted in the game was perhaps manipulated in the game. That was a nice addition to it. I think if you're using this stuff, yeah, we can make suggestions for some ideas, but I think it, the bottom line is it is more difficult to run good horror games where you have got mobile phones and things. There are workarounds, but they're workarounds. And and in some ways, you can use those things to introduce the horror. But the fact that I can be on the driving over the, the moors and break down on a foggy night and then just ring up the AA or ring up, you know, something on my mobile phone and I probably have got connection. Because if, if the GM then says, oh, you haven't got connection, it's like, really? Because I probably would have. Well, unless you're on three. It gives and it takes. I think the gives part is important there as well, because mm. I'm pretty sure I mentioned this in the episode at the time, but one of the things I love about mobile phone technology and horror is that it presents an opportunity to split the party. In an ordinary 1920s game, you know, if you all head off in different directions, you can't keep the party in contact too easily. And that maybe discourages people from splitting the party as much. But my experience of running modern games is you quite often get everyone heading off in different directions to maximise the investigation, keeping in contact on their phones via text messages or voice calls. And of course, now that they're all on their own, they're vulnerable. And I think that's great. I've, I've really used that myself. It's something that Blade Runner certainly encourages that you all split up to cover more ground in your investigation, but you can still, as the other players, interact with a degree to what's happening in someone else's scene because you're all connected via your PDAs. Hmm. Effectively mobile phones, but they have other functions as well. So it's a way for you to yeah give spotlights to other players for certain scenes, but still have everyone else be able to interact with what's happening to a limited degree. And I think like Bud, I'm a big fan of modern day horror scenarios uh, and i'd like to see more of them and you know we don't have to look at horror films i would say the majority of horror films are set in the modern day because mm. that's what the audience know you know that, that's what we're most familiar with it's most easy to get buy-in with as an audience member you go in and it's set in you know a location not similar to the one you live in perhaps and it's cheaper to make yeah that's not always a good thing but yeah <laughs> When it becomes so cheap, it's terrible. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so yeah, I think we have touched on that in a previous episode. Go back and listen to uh, whatever episode it was Scott said. Episode, what was it, Scott? 71. 71. Check that out. We'll do likewise and see what else we can add to it. 
almost 200 episodes ago to the count. Oh, that just <laughs> makes us sound old, Matt. <laughs> I feel old. I don't need to sound old. Matt, don't take this the wrong way, but fuck right off. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind, Matt. You'll be 40 next month. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Then we have a suggestion from Delapore, the rat in the balls. I would like to hear the three of you design a scenario together. Walk us through the creative process, or alternatively start with the same topic for a scenario, and each build your own so we can see the different choices you make as you design. I prefer the latter, because we've done the former so many times over, but the latter sounds like it could be really fun. Hmm. We haven't done the former actually that much. No, we haven't. When it comes to scenarios, we've only actually written one scenario together as a group collaboration. That was the the one in... Uh, oh, so no, two. We, we did the first two scenarios in the first two tomes. So we've done a couple of campaigns together, but yeah. then we're working on our own chapter with input from the others. Yeah. I mean, I think both of those are interesting we could potentially i don't know if we could do this but an episode where we actually create a scenario but i'm not sure i think i would find that quite challenged because I, i'm quite a slow worker i'm not sure i could uh, mm. come up with a scenario in the space of a an episode and the second one i think it need to be more than the same starting point because mm. from the the starting point you could go anywhere and yeah. we'd, we'd end up with three totally different scenarios. So I think perhaps for that, what you'd need is like, here's a bunch of locations and here's a bunch of NPCs and a few other things. Now take those and make something. Like you were with a cookery challenge, here's a bunch of ingredients, now make the dish. I do that fairly regularly anyway, because I, I run a lot of improv games for Ain't Slade Nobody, and that's pretty much exactly what we do. We get suggestions for elements uh, from from the Patreon backers on, on Ain't Slade. They chip in all these ideas, and then we incorporate those and turn them into a scenario premise, uh, characters, different things we can throw into the scenario, and then just improv the whole thing. Can't for Targon, won't for Targon. For those that remember certain cookery shows oh. <laughs> back on BBC. It took a minute to work it out, but yes, I've got it. <laughs> yeah, I think either of those have potentially got tentacles. They'll suck you in. The latter probably has more potential. But not so much for a show, maybe. Maybe we could take some inspiration for what Enslaved have done there. Go out to the Patreon backers, say, give us a, a whole bunch of suggestions, and give some constraints along those lines. And yeah. then each one of the three of us takes the same bunch of suggestions away and then comes back and talks about what scenario we'd make out of them and how we'd structure it and so on. Equally, I think the, the first idea of the three of us working through a scenario together Together. I don't know. I'm not sure how that would work, but um, within an episode, I'm I'm the same as you. It's it takes me a long time to come up with stuff in a coherent form, so it's not going to be something to do in a single episode. Oh, I've never worried about being coherent. The trouble with it is you each end up pulling in different directions. I think, yeah, which makes the kind of creative process quite difficult. I think the latter would work much better. But yeah, I'd certainly be up for that.
Next up, we've got DM Bad Wrong Fun. Is there any other type of fun? His first suggestion is, I'd love an episode on the topic of the alone against solo scenarios. Thoughts on creating one, how differences of story structure and scope differences from more typical adventures, opinions on published ones, etc. My first impression is these things are bloody difficult to put together, unless someone just jumbles up all the entries afterwards at the publisher's end to have that flicking through the book approach, because the thought of doing that just makes my head want to melt. (laughs) I imagine it would be a lot easier to do it these days, at least prototyping it using hypertext, because you could just use HTML basically to to put the links between the different sections and then sort of retrofit the page numbers or whatever in there afterwards. Certainly, I, I mean, I like the Alone Against or solo scenarios. I've been a fan of those for a long time. I think since I played Sorcerer, I think it was called Sorcerer's Apprentice or Sorcerer Solitaire, I think, like a Tunnels and Trolls one back in the 80s. And recently I took part in the Storytelling Collective. They run a, essentially like a book group. Each month they look at a different game. And the first month they did Call of Cthulhu. So I think this was back about three months ago, maybe like, may or something like that and they looked at call of cthulhu and they brought me in to sort of um be one of the i don't know what you'd call it like hosts and we did a couple of sort of question and answer sessions on zoom and discussions on forums and so on about the game and everybody who participated was given the call of cthulhu starter box set and whilst i was familiar with it i hadn't really sat down and looked at it as a punter before as a as a like Mm. a new person to the game so it was really interesting and what fascinated me most was opening up the box and looking at it in the order they would look at it because you you open it up and the first thing you do you know the first there's there's a number of booklets in the starter box and i think like on the second page maybe you're making choices about your character in a kind of this find your own adventure style mode and you're playing the game. You're playing a game almost on the first page, which is absolutely fantastic. And then I played through Alone Against the Flames. That was a lot of fun. I hadn't really played it through properly before. But then talking to somebody on the, the forums, because I, I, I just as a, a topic, I sort of said, you know, uh, I died horribly or something. How did, how did everybody else get on? just to prompt some some feedback and one person said oh you know i've played it multiple times and it you know ran differently each time and, and everything and then they said which fascinated me then i ran it for someone else mm. as if they were running a regular scenario but they didn't tell the other person it was written as a solo scenario mm. and that really testifies that it's well written because it addresses all of those things that the player wanted to do. They were there in the options. Oh, nice. I'm assuming that the fact that the guy ran it that way, that's kind of what he was saying. So it is like, you know, any scenario you could potentially turn into a find your own adventure. And yeah. it is sort of thinking about what the players are likely to do. Obviously, some people are going to do something different that isn't catered for in the book. That's always the case. But often the, the likely routes through an adventure are kind of like those are the ones that you'd include in the story paths there was a game a few years back which really blurred the lines between those quite nicely i don't know if you ever played it which was murderous ghosts by vincent baker no i didn't play that one yeah it's designed as a one-on-one game 
So you've got a, a GM and a player, and it does follow a sort of choose-your-own-adventure format, but at the same time, the GM brings in a lot of colour and description and narrative to the game, but then you have a sort of choose-your-own-adventure format that directs the play. And yeah, it's a really interesting bit of game design. Well, he is very good at that, so mm. I shall look that up. You know, when I think of this, I think, as Matt said, it's a difficult challenge to write a solo adventure. Gavin mm. Inglis does a great job. He wrote Alone Against the Flames and Alone Against the Frost. And also the solo adventure, which is kind of like your opening adventure, create your character and get familiar with the rules in Rivers of London. Mm. Yeah, and, and also head over to storytellingcollective.com and their bookworms group. Yeah, I've not played any of these. I... In fact, I don't think I've ever played a proper solo RPG like that, a sort of choose-your-own-adventure type game. The closest I got was Kim Newman put out a novel in that format called Life's Lottery many years back, which is uh, quite a weird book, which I enjoyed. But, I, yeah, I don't know. I've, it's one of these things where... As I said when we were discussing journaling games in response to a question a while back, I play RPGs as a, a social activity, and it's not that I'm against the idea of something like the Alone Against Games, it's just that it's never occurred to me to play one, because that's not what I play RPGs for. Maybe I should overcome that, that prejudice at some stage and give one a try. It's like playing RPGs without having to talk to anyone. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> And also a DM bad wrong fun, their second suggestion. If there's a way for you to dive into scenarios written by Japanese creators, that could be a fantastic episode. Yeah, me being able to speak Japanese would be great. I know only a limited amount have ever been translated into English, so this may be a difficult request. That said, even though I don't speak Japanese, I have played one of these scenarios. No, oh, which one? Poison Soup. I've played that one as well, yeah. <laughs> Bloody weird. <laughs> really weird. It is, yeah. Did you play it with a group or as a, as a solo player? No, with a group. One of our listeners ran it for me a while back as a one-on-one -on -one game. You can play with a small group, but it, I think it's designed specifically for a single player. And yeah, I, I had a fantastic time with it. It would make sense how it's set up. Without giving away any of the beats in it, really, it feels a bit like an escape room kind of scenario. Very much. You're in a room, there's various exits, and there you go. Work out what the fuck to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's bizarre. It's very different from pretty much every other Call of Cthulhu scenario. And even when you zoom out and get the explanation of what's going on at the end, again, it mm. feels very different because it's... A, it uses something that I've only ever seen used in quite a boring way before in scenarios, and so it was nice and innovative to see that behind-the-scenes peek of how to use a particular entity in a different way, which I thought was very, very thumbs-up, very, very good uh, good show for that. Yeah. But yeah, just really, really different. And apparently from the um, from our GM who ran it for us, uh, Dr. Lex Hurley, he was quite an advocate of these scenarios. That He'd also read a f at least one or two others that had also been translated or even i'm not sure if he can actually speak japanese or not but it was definitely that he was saying he's read a few of them 
There's a website where there's a translator who has been putting these scenarios out, and they're, they're in, I think they're in the public domain, I think. Well, I don't know about public domain, but they're ones that were made freely available. And so as a result, the translator has been translating them into English and putting them up for free download on the website. And Poison Soup is definitely one of those. Yeah, I thought Poison Soup was a really interesting scenario. I don't think there's anything about it that makes it stand out as being Japanese. Certainly there's no cultural references or anything like that that struck me as being Japanese. Like you say, I mean, it's an unusual bit of scenario design, but I don't know how much that reflects typical Call of Cthulhu scenarios in Japan. From the little bits I've read from people who've played them, I'd certainly be interested in seeing or playing more of those. Have you ever read or played any, Paul? No, I don't believe I have. I mean, I'm, I'm all for more crossover. Call of Cthulhu is very, very popular in Japan, and I'd be fascinated to read more Japanese scenarios. So I will look up the one you mentioned. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have T-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. First of all, thank you to you for listening to this episode. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Starting off with a thanks to Adriana O'Shea. And thank you much to Devin McGinty. And thank you very much to Brooks. And thanks to Frederick Christiansen. Uh, I'm, I'm glad I got this one. <laughs> oh, this is a great name. And thank you much to Farty McButterpants. The best kind of pants. <laughs> and thank you very much to Zyphosura. And thanks to Thomas Bailey. Hey, Thomas is a friend of mine. He's running Dune for us tonight. So, hello, Thomas. Oh, nice. Another name I recognise here as well. Thank you much to William Adcock. And thank you very much to Alan Graham. And thanks to Texas Toast. And also thank you much to David Morgan. And thank you to Hubert Zadrozny. And thanks to Timothy Bushell. I'm sensing a theme here. I've had one McGinty and now I've got another. In this case, thank you much to Brian McGinty. And thank you very much to Craig. And thanks to David Luce. And thank you very much to Mark Story. And thank you finally to Will Tijerina. And of course, if we have completely messed up any of your names, please do let us know and we will make amends. And if you've enjoyed the show, please head on over to the social medias of your choice and let other people know. Yes, or leave a review somewhere where unsuspecting eyes might stumble across it. You've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.